Welcome to Three Right Turns, the podcast where we try to figure out what the hell's going wrong, how do we fix it, and how can we keep our communities, our countries, and our world on the right track once we get it fixed. I'm your host, Aaron, and I, after several months, am cracking open the old mailbag. It's been a while. It's been since July, I think. And I want to get right to it, but first, you know, the election is just a few short weeks away, and there, I, mean, I don't have to tell you, there's a lot at stake. Not just at the tippy top of the ticket with Trump and Biden, something we're always trying to talk about this on this podcast. So much stuff. The Senate's up for play. A lot of the House races are very tight. Up and down your local and state ticket, there's going to be important candidates that you need to win, important initiatives and levies that will impact your rights and fund things like access to mental health care and good schools in your neighborhoods. Here in Cincinnati, we've got uh, an emergency levy uh, for the Cincinnati public school systems. It's going to pay for uh, uh, preschool for three- and four-year-olds. It's going to provide uh, college prep and uh, vocational training and uh, the remote uh, learning and technology for students, which is desperately needed in these times. These kind of things pass and fail with extremely narrow margins when you're talking stuff at the state and local level. And no matter what kind of state you live in, your vote is always critical there. It's not just every four years about the president. It's every year, at least every two years. And these state and local things are so important. And then when it comes to the national race, well, we want to run up the score, right? I mean, if we're worried about dirty tricks and ballot manipulation and voter intimidation and all kinds of this nasty stuff, and we should be worried about that, our first and best defense is to make sure this election is a one-sided historic schlacking. Just total electoral devastation. The whole country repudiating a singularly corrupt, dangerous, mean-spirited, and un-American president and his whole administration. We can make that happen. If you live in the reddest of red states, vote. Your state and local races need you. We need you to run up that popular vote score. We need you to run it up sky high. If you live in the bluest of blue states and you think it's safe and you don't have to vote because, yeah, your local and state races need you, your communities need you, we need to run up that popular vote score. If you live in the swingingest of swing states, of course, yes, you got to vote. You need to get your friends and family to vote. You can help the country win the Electoral College, run up the popular vote, and help push your local and state governments in a positive direction. Win, win, win. Hopefully, you're already registered, so now it's just time to get it done. We just got our ballots re-requested, a mail-in ballot, you know, because of COVID and all that, and voting early. It's the best best way to do it. Just got our ballots uh, in the mail this week. We're going to be filling them out and hand-delivering them to our county's election board. And I'm going to be tracking that thing every day, let me tell you. Every day until I see it's been received and counted. And if you can do something like that, I mean, I highly recommend it. That's the that's the kind of poll watching that I want to see. Watch your own damn ballot. Make sure that sucker is counted. But we got to vote. You got to vote. Don't be discouraged by long lines. That's all horse shit. That is, uh, you know, not not voter intimidation, but that's definitely attempted voter disenfranchisement. Don't be intimidated by shady post office goings on, by rumors and conspiracy theories. And all the blah, blah, blah you're hearing from one side or the other. Uh, And the good news is, by all accounts, we're looking really good heading into November. I mean, we don't want to get complacent, but Biden's leading by over 10 points nationally. The battleground states are looking really good. 
But, but you know, we don't want to get complacent because polls don't win elections, right? People voting and having those votes count, that's what wins elections. But what we're doing, um, you know, by, by encouraging everyone to register, by registering ourselves, by voting early, by having those difficult conversations with our friends and family, educating people, getting them ready to vote, talking about the, the importance of not just the, the national but the state and local stuff, it, it really looks like it's working. It looks like we're going to have historic levels of turnout. 17 million people have already voted in this election. That's, that is already unprecedented and historic. And just remember, the more we run up the score, the less room there's going to be for any kind of shenanigans. The higher the chance any shenanigans that are attempted to be pulled will be detected and appropriately dealt with. And we want just as little doubt as possible. So even if they're able to improperly swing the vote a few percentage points by throwing away this bag of ballots or wiping out this ballot server or what, even if they've got their districts gerrymandered all to hell, we still we can still win this thing. So vote. I mean, I don't, I don't understand why a person would pay this much attention to politics, listen to a political podcast you know, get your politics on Twitter and then not show up and vote, not have a plan and vote. So go go vote. By the way, next Thursday, the 22nd, there will be the final presidential debate, at least we think. That's that's the plan. And I will be live streaming it at uh, youtube.com slash swizzbold. And if you want to watch with me, please stop by. These have been a lot of fun. I've had a lot of people showing up. We've had some lively uh, chat, uh, some laughs, some tears, uh, some angry shakes of the fist. And if you missed the previous debates and town halls, for whatever reason, I've got the whole archive, uh, the, all, all of those watches, those mutual watches archived on youtube.com slash swizzbold. It's got the, the video and audio of them both, so you can hear me, you can hear them. It's a good time. Uh, check it out. Now let's get right to it. Like I said, it's been since July since I answered questions from the listeners, um, you know, at least through the email bag. I do it every month over on the Patreon live stream and, and then these, uh, these other streaming events, but... But yeah, you, you send stuff in to three right turns at swizzbold.com. Uh, it's time to answer them. I'm going to try to shoot it to you as straight as possible. First up, we got Audrey. Audrey T says, I'm curious if you don't mind me asking that if you could make the same living you make off Swizzbold, would you make it your main focus and then have Bald Move become your passion project? That's that's a tough question because uh, Bald Move tends to be just a lot more fun and and easier it is a lot of work but like it's um it's the kind of work that i know how to do you know you watch something you got opinion on it you talk about it uh, i don't have to like look up and research why i liked the last episode of fargo and justify that from a statistical uh expert consensus analysis right um and the three right turn stuff feels more like it's necessary you know I have this really intense interest in politics, so you know, just following it up and doing the research—that's all fun for me. But then, you know, packaging it up and and into some kind of entertaining format or interesting format, and coming up with a script every week or every other week—it's it's really hard. And if I if I did this full time, uh, I don't think it would look like what Bald Move does. You know, where you got like four or five, eight. <laughs> podcast out each week it'd probably look a lot more like a lot of interviews more live streams maybe long form video content um which i'm really interested in doing because there's so much you can do with the visual you know uh like i said that uh, ccp gray 
um, uh, Animal Kingdom, uh, third-party vote kind of thing. It, it took him five minutes to do the thing that it took me like 50 minutes to do because he's got cute animal pictures and stuff. And I, I think that's cool. That's cool, a way to engage with people. But um, I, I just really enjoy what I do over on Bald Move. I really enjoy the shows and the movies we watch. I really enjoy talking about it with Jim. And I really enjoy the community we built. So I, I can't see stopping that. But um, uh It'll be interesting to see how you, you balance the two sides um, it, 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 as, as Swizzbold continues to grow. Audrey continues, I very much enjoyed your conversation with Vosh this week. I've always considered myself a moderate liberal, but recent times has got me continuously sliding to the left. Well, well, Audrey, welcome to the club. By inclination, I've always been more socially progressive. I fell on uh, all on board with uh, social safety nets. Uh, you sold me on Medicare for all, UBI, ranked choice voting. Good, good, good. I'm also coming around to some of the economic um, arguments of socialism. You know, billionaires really shouldn't exist in the country where so many are unhoused and are one medical bill away from bankruptcy. What was really hard to wrap my head around in your conversation, though, was co-ops. I get that most people don't have a say in the workplace, but they do have a say in where they work. But but do they, Audrey? Um, I mean, I know that that's the that's the argument, right? That's the right to work conservative argument that you you know you vote with your feet, right? Uh, but even leaving aside the idea of like contracts where people literally can't change their their jobs um, or non compete things, things like that that make it hard in certain uh, you know careers to do that kind of stuff. Does that really describe the average individual's relationship with their work, with their job? I feel like that most people go with the first place that will have them. You know, they go through an interview process. The first, you know, they they pick whatever they think is the best one. And then they work there until they're fired. They get downsized or otherwise they're forced to find something new. That seems to be my relationship with. And it seems to be when I talk to other people, that's kind of how humans do. They don't like to violate the routine once they get into it. And I say this not to like, you know, kind of, I feel like I'm, I'm jumping you a paragraph into your, your argument, but sometimes I feel like we need to question these assumptions because that's, that's where, you know, the wheels start turning in different directions because, you know, what you said is technically true, but you know, is it true in practice? And if it's not true in practice, you know, why isn't it? Because you could say the same thing about, you know, your city or state government. If you don't like What's going on in your city or your state? Just move. You know, wh- why even have local democracy? You can just vote with your feet, right? Just go to go to where the, the grass is greener. But we know it's not that simple. People, people get a job. They build a home in the community that's at least somewhat close to that job. It's proximity-based, right? They've got child care uh, that they set up and depend on. Also things in close proximity. They've got their transportation arranged. They rely on their job for medical benefits. And if they choose to work elsewhere, you know, boy, that's starting to look like a big and difficult choice now, doesn't it? Can they find something better that's within within a reasonable commuting distance? Will they have to change their child care? Will they have to move? Will their new insurance cover their family doctor they feel comfortable with and have a rapport with? You know, that's that's what we're talking about here. Our, our work's a lot more enmeshed in the average person's life. And it dominates far more choices that we make on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month uh, type basis. Yet it's the place where we individually or even collectively have the least amount of say. Like my local government even doesn't have as much control in my life as any of my employers ever did. As far as telling me when I had to get up. Like, like you know, it, it, it dominates whether you, what time you get up. 
I worked jobs where I had to get up at like 10 o'clock at night and work until 7 in the morning. I didn't choose to do that, but they dictated. Imagine the government said, okay, you third of Americans are going to have to go to bed at, at, at or are going to have to go to bed at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and wake up at midnight to work your shift. It'd be insane. Nobody would, but we let, you know, our, our places of employment do that kind of stuff. All right, back back to Audrey. She says, I also get nervous thinking about how ineffective and partisan local governments can be and how long it takes to get things done in a democracy. There'd have to be major, major global overhauls to how businesses were run for co-ops, as I understand in the work. I mean, maybe, maybe not. Because again, a lot of this stuff is, you know, these these baby steps towards socialism, they're, they're experiments. You got to see what works and what doesn't work. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the big challenges that set before people that are like me, socialist curious, because I don't, I don't think we're ready for pure socialism, quote unquote, right now. Like our whole Western concept of life and work and what success and prosperity looks like the way it's set up, we have a hard time conceiving of things like what a society would look like, uh, without markets, without private capital investment in companies with workers or the public or appointed state representatives, uh, with ownership uh, of industries. We, we don't have like the intellectual or even emotional framework to think about these concepts in any kind of like, you know, fair way. So like, like an example to illustrate this, let's say you went back 50,000 years ago, back to caveman times, right? And it's, port- it's important to note that like uh, science says that humans have been anatomically modern humans for like the last 200,000 years. Had the same body, same brain, same basic capabilities. So if you could travel back in time and like swap babies with a caveman family, that cave baby you would take back to the 21st century would be just as intelligent and capable in a modern day setting. Could be an engineer, an astronaut, no problem. Got the brain for it. I just need the the training that you will provide, the schooling. But you take that modern baby back uh, to 50,000 BC or whatever. They're probably going to be eaten by a lion at the age of 23. It's, you know, there's, there's, they're, they're, we're the same as what I'm trying to say. So let's say you go back in time and instead of stealing caveman babies, you decide you're going to give them a leg up on their social development. You're going to violate the, the prime directive in Star Trek. So you go to various tribes. They're living in Africa and the, the Middle East and you say, all right, all right, here, Og, Og, I understand that Thag has killed your brother. And you're real upset about it. And you just want to beat his head in with that rock. And you want to get your vengeance. But but Og, what you don't understand is that's just going to set off this never-ending cycle of violence. That's only going to end when one side or the other, one of your tribes is wiped out or utterly defeated. You know, Og, what, what you need is justice. You need real justice. And justice means you need to establish a common law that you can all agree on. Like, you know, you shouldn't kill each other. It's a good place to start. Then when Thag breaks that law, you can get the other cavemen together. You can bring him to a cave of justice. And here the, the facts of Thag's lawbreaking can be determined. And other non-partial cavemen of your peers can judge those facts and give him a just sentence. Maybe he needs to be confined to a cave with other dangerous cavemen for some set period of time. Maybe 15 years. And in that cave... He's going to learn new skill sets. He's going to learn new ways to express his pain and his grief and his frustration. And after he's done that, we can let him free. And instead of a pile of corpses, we'll have just the one, your brother. But that's okay because we've rehabilitated Thag and, and now you've got justice. Well, Og's just going to bash your brain straight in. 
right? And then go bash Thag's brains in, too, because what the fuck do you mean, justice? Caves of rehabilitation waiting days, months, years for this process to take place? Who's going to pay for this? It's all just pie-in-the-sky bullshit to Og. But you give him a few thousand years, they they get introduced to agriculture, writing systems, law codes, the idea of a state, and, you know, now... Og's sense of justice is going to com- completely change. He's going to see that all that other shit, the, the bashing in the brains, that's just barbaric. He's got civilization now. And I feel like a lot of times when it comes to stuff like socialism, we're kind of the cavemen ooga booga about like how this can possibly work from our current state of understanding, from a current point of view, from within the system. And present-day socialists have two ways of responding to this challenge. One, fucking revolution, man. Get all the rich up against the wall. All the boot-licking liberals, too. Shoot them. Guillotine them. Eat them. Redistribute their wealth. Destroy society so that it can be remade new. Put anyone who's not on board with it in the re-education camps. There's no problems with this plan. It will be super easy. It's going to be super cool. Maybe you'll have a year or two of disruption or bumps or problems. But what does that compare to the glorious collective human future that we can enjoy forever and ever and ever? I think this is an insane ahistorical way to look at revolutions, and I have a pretty extensive collection of expert opinions on sociology, history, and economics to back that opinion up. And and you know how I feel about expert opinion, right? Expert consensus. But on the other hand, it's also to me ridiculous to say, well, socialism hasn't worked in the last hundred years of human history that's stretched back to 200,000 years. So it's never going to work. And any attempts to change the existing system to make it better or make incremental changes, you got to treat them as an existential threat. And, you know, unfortunately, my friend Rio Publican, which I've talked to recently, and the vast majority of people today are of kind of that opinion, which is where the second type of socialist comes in, my type of socialist. I want to take this large task of transforming society. I want to break it down into smaller, discrete, achievable steps. And I want to achieve these goals, these steps democratically. So we got to identify what those baby steps are towards socialism. What is that Wright Brothers version of socialism, right? And the fact is, you know, really when you think about it, like I I think we sold the thing short when I was talking to Vosh, like we're kind of living in Wright Brothers socialism already, you know, or, or maybe we've got hang glider socialism or what we got is parachute socialism. You get to the break glass and in case of emergency socialism, because we got we got social security, you know, you get too old to work, we'll take care of you. Most democracies around the world have some form of socialized uh, health care. And we pay for those things by redistributing the wealth generated in our in our countries in the form of progressive tax systems. And fiscal conservatives can howl as long and as hard as they want, but they're never, ever going to get us to go back to the ground now that we're kind of sort of flying, hang gliding, parachuting, whatever. There's not. Those policies are hugely popular and they're very successful and they change how people feel about themselves, about the government, about their future. You know, getting a few feet off the ground, it does that to your perspective. It elevates it, right? So the question is, what does biplane socialism look like? You know, what will the ground look like from that vantage point? How much further will we'll be able to see? And now that I have this all elaborate ooga booga caveman stuff out of the way, let, let's continue with your with your email. So Audrey says, I've been with my grocery company for over 15 years. About five years ago, my company created a partner stock plan. Essentially, even though we're a private company, 
we earn stock without putting any of our own money in. There's interest and dividends paid out each year. As of right now, I have $12,000 in this plan of extra money, which would be mine right away if I retired or given to me a year after I quit. And, you know, I feel like this is a, a great step forward. You know, you're, it's not like you're, you don't own the means of production, but you are getting a greater share of the profits that derive from those means. You know, you're, you're getting a little bit more share of the value that your labor is going into this company. Traditionally, you know, labor gets paid a wage. Uh, the, the owner of the store uh, gets to keep 100% of the profits they make after they pay their labor and for their product. And if the workers work hard and the store profits immensely, the owner gets all that profit. And if the workers kind of slack off and the store suffers, the owner doesn't make as much profit. But there's no direct reward to the worker for harder work. And there's no direct consequences for less intensive efforts towards their labor. They get paid their wage all the same. I mean, Theoretically, market forces should fix all this, right? Ineffective workers get replaced. Ineffective management loses good workers to better firms or lose their firms themselves. Uh, but all of you listening, you know, take a mental stock of all the places you've ever worked. How well does all that stuff work again in practice? And this is one of the many contradictions that Marx identified within cap capitalism. Now your work has been somewhat directly coupled to the value of your labor to the value of the company, which helps resolve some, but not all of those contradictions. But let's get back to your point. With this plan, they have designated us as owners. The company culture is partly based on us all having literal stock in a company. Part-time cashiers are empowered to make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis as they know the customers are best, uh, know the customers the best and how to take care of them. Non-management grocery partners are given the power to bring in uh, and merchandise thousands of dollars with a perishable product that they think it would be a good seller. Personally, I have the power to purchase tens of thousands of dollars worth of the supplies and sundry each month if I think it will make my store run better. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm liking this. I'm hearing a lot of empowerment, a lot of freedom ringing from these paragraphs. It's, it's really beautiful. Yet, there are people way above me making decisions I know nothing about. They make decisions to invest and research things I never knew existed. For example, in January, my company was working with Chinese retailers to prepare for the virus coming our way. We were so prepared with metering, social distancing, mandating masks, plexiglass partitions, that when the Texas government finally decided to take COVID somewhat seriously, they frequently used our tactics as the golden example to set for the state. I fear if we had been a cooperative, majority rule would have not been in favor for us to spend resources preparing for this catastrophe when hardly anyone was taking it seriously in America. I think at a certain point, large businesses could not be effective with so many hands steering the wheel. Okay. So right here, I, I don't know. Are we having an ooga booga kind of moment? Because how is what's going on in your company not just a microcosm of what goes on in America as a whole? And I know that's part of your argument, but you know we've got inept leadership on top that did not take the pandemic seriously. We have varying levels of incompetence at our state and city level. But you know you're not personally responsible for selecting the president's cabinet, right? You're not personally responsible for appointing the head of the centers of disease control. Are you happy with the choices that have been made? I mean, I haven't. I, I, it doesn't sound like you are either. But regardless, would we have been better off if we had no say in like selecting the president? Um, what if we let everyone who has the money and the property in society handle all that kind of work for us? What if we all we had to worry about is showing up at our jobs and just let all that political stuff kind of work itself out? 
you know, and if we don't like the result, move to a different country, would that be better? And I think this is what I'm talking about, that Uga Booga moment, because you're you're envisioning this large, complicated workplace being managed like 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 a local farmer's market collective or alternatively, you're worrying about it getting so big and bureaucratic that nothing can get done. But, you know, you're not going to have a say in all the business decisions that go on in a co-op. You know, you're not going to have to make all the hires. You don't have to micromanage the company. You don't micromanage the United States, right? If you have a 10-person tech or legal firm, sure, fine. You set that up as a co-op, run it like a hippie commune, you know? Post up chores list in the break room, take turns cleaning, taking out the trash. Everyone gets a vote on adopting new software. Everyone gets a vote on which insurance package we set. You know, knock yourself out. You know, get, get all up in there and micromanage the shit out of that. But if you're talking about running a 5,000-person multi-state grocery store chain, maybe that model doesn't work. But could you elect a CEO for some kind of set term, you know, like maybe four years? Could you elect a leader of the cashier's union? Could you elect a buyer, a human resources manager, uh, the lead marketer? And then trust these people to fill out their departments and make decisions for their departments. And if they don't do a good job, then you'll have a say in their replacement. Or maybe or whether they need to be replaced or not. Maybe large sweeping changes or initiatives to the company can come up to popular vote the same way we might have ballot initiatives in our uh, elections for important things going on in our cities and states. So I, I think you can you can see it working. Uh, the real question is, like, why the hell would you structure a company that way? Why would an entrepreneur, you know? And, and I still have a lot to learn and research on this, but in the limited amount that I've done... There's a lot of indications because um, co-ops are quite a bit more popular in some places overseas and in Europe than they are here in the United States, that co-ops lead to higher worker satisfaction, higher customer satisfaction. Uh, they're more stable. They're more resilient in the face of economic shocks and fluctuations. Uh, for example, and this might be in particular interest to you, Audrey, uh, Co-op Norge, a large Norwegian retail grocery store cooperative, it's in Norway. It's the second largest retailer in the country. It operates 117 locations, has more than 1.3 million members. And apparently each of the local co-ops is ran by a board of directors that's directly uh, elected by the members of the co-op. And it makes over $3.5 billion U.S. dollars. I, I did, the, did, the, did the math. I did the Norwegian dollar conversion. $3.5 U.S. dollars, $3.5 U.S. dollars a year. So you can make it work, and it does seem to scale. That's a pretty big ongoing concern here. But again, what capitalist or entrepreneur would voluntarily convert their structure um, of their business to, to the co-op model? You know, why wouldn't why would they voluntarily give up keeping all the profits? Well, I I do it. I want to do it. If either Swissbold or Bald Move ever grows beyond the founding partners, I'd absolutely want to structure it as a worker-owned co-op. So. You know, you get a few idealists out there to test and adopt it, but, uh, you know, I don't know. It seems like uh, idealistic entrepreneurs are in a fairly short supply right now. But maybe we don't have to rely on CEOs and venture capitalists doing the right thing. Uh, in, in researching this this answer, I found out that 30 years ago in Italy, they passed what they call the Marcora Law, which allows employees the opportunity to buy out their company if it's going to be going underwater. And since then, worker-owned cooperatives that have been created by workers buying the business, uh, a business when it's facing a, a foreclosure, 
or otherwise put up for sale have a three-year survival rate of 87% compared to 48% of all other Italian businesses in, in those positions. I mean, that's quite an improvement in the long-term financial outlook of, of these companies, right? So could we do something like that in the U.S.? You know, every company that fails because of poor management or an economic setback or whatever, every time something is fails or is put up for sale, what if that became an opportunity to democratize a workplace? I mean, it's going under anyway. It's going to be sold anyway. Why not let the employees have a crack? I feel like that feels exciting to me, especially if 80% of them are going to be going for the long term and they're attractive from a worker point of view. You can start to see that start to take off, you know? So anyway, uh, I really appreciate your email and Audrey. I hope I got an answer to your question. Uh, I'd love to talk more about co-ops in the future. Maybe do a whole show on them. And I'm I'm looking actively looking for a subject matter expert to to talk through that stuff with me. If you know anyone that might fit that bill with the expertise about co-ops, especially international ones, because again, I I'm I'm, get, I'm seeing a lot of exciting things in like uh, um, Italy and France and Germany and Norway. There's a lot a lot of cooperatives there. Uh, uh, let let me know at three rt at swissbold.com. Alex S., formerly from Fort Worth, now living in Colorado, says, I've really been enjoying the discourse you've been having with folks from the Moving Forward podcast, and Three Art Turns as has been, uh, on the whole, a very informative listen. As someone raised in small-town Texas that has gradually become more progressive, more liberal during my life, I'm very thankful to hear someone advocating for empathetically driven avenues of changing minds rather than demonizing our friends and family that deserve a respectful discourse. Alex Hey, I appreciate the kind words, but uh, I, I think it's the only way to go. A lot of these ideas we talk about on the podcast, you know, these these liberal progressive uh, ideas don't get a lot of play in discussion of politics. You know, when you when you turn on CNN, when you're watching the president's debates, they don't really talk the same about the same issues that we do, and not in the same way. Uh, so the only way to kind of move the needle on this is to go out and engage people where they're at. You know, go go to where they live intellectually and and work on helping those people understand the issues and and how the specific policies and plans can help them. So Alex continues on your most recent episode of the Rio Socialist Curious. I heard Rio say something that I found to be a very strong statement that I don't think was discussed. Rio posited that the only the most educated successful among us should be given the responsibility of governing that a normal person is unqualified because they're. Well, uh, ordinary or not the best and brightest among us. This struck me on the surface uh, because it reads as a slightly elitist point of view. I believe a democracy is reliant upon citizens being informed and engaged in a democracy in order for it to function well. I agree that a lot of the problems with the current Republican Party comes from poor, uneducated people being ignorant. But I'm afraid saying an ordinary person is unqualified to have a say in their governance is kind of against what this whole democracy thing is trying to do. I also wondered to myself if his belief is maybe a little too reliant on the belief that our society truly rewarded the smartest and hardest working among us. But in a society where 70% of the jobs are hired based on who you know, kind of like nepotism, I'm afraid this argument feels a little hollow to me personally. I mean, years ago, AOC was holding down a working class job, but now she's able to be considered one of the modern leaders of the left. 
All in all, it really took me by surprise that someone as respectful and free speech loving as Rio kind of low-key expressed a very elitist attitude to government. I was really curious to see your thoughts on what he said. How much power and say should the average citizen have versus the expert opinion? And how do you determine who is qualified voice or leader for our nation? Well, thanks for the feedback, uh, Alex. And to be honest, I've only talked to him a few times. I, I still don't have a really good pin on Rio. Um, you know, he, he's certainly not a bad guy, but he's he's coming from a conservative point of view. And also, he's he's also sitting on like two more moving forward podcasts that I've recorded with him that haven't been released yet. Um, and I know we go really deep into our political philosophical differences. And I, I can't remember what we talked about publicly and what's not. But I think these upcoming conversations on, on moving forward is, are going to be interest, interesting and enlightening. But to, direct, to directly answer your question, you know, I, I think most forms of elitism are kind of bunk um, for two reasons, like what you pointed out. The United States is far from a meritocracy. That's the the story we like to tell ourselves. But when so much of your success comes from where you live, who your parents were, the color of your skin, and since those determine to a large extent what kind of schools you're going to grow up in, how well your local government functions, how your community is policed, how many financial resources you're going to have available to yourself. I mean, you have to go through that whole random gauntlet before you can even start factoring in the who you know level of bullshit on top of that. And a lot of times it just comes down to, you know, what school you could afford to go to and what social class you you grew up in. It's It's a lot more random and a lot more baked in from your birth than we like to think. And that's not to say that America has no upwards mobility. I mean, that's not true. It's just not as much as we like to think. And uh, I feel like in the last few generations, if you look at the statistics, the, the, the income inequality, the shrinking middle class, that upwards mobility is getting harder and harder and slower and slower. It's just not the way a great society should operate. Each successive generation should have a better life, have access to more resources, more prospects, or why the hell are we doing any of this stuff? Just go back to hunting and gathering if we're not going to provide actual better lives for our descendants. So that's that's the one aspect of it. But but another is, you know, we can't kid ourselves. All of us humans follow along a curve, you know, when it comes to intelligence, the ability to discern facts, make good decisions. Right now, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast might think, well, you know, the conservatives have a lock on the bottom end of that spectrum, right? The bottom end of that curve, that's where all the conservatives lives. But I promise you that that's not the case. I see plenty of dumb shit coming from very public and successful leftists and progressives, just just the worst kind of takes. And in the end, I think that, that all kind of balances out. You know, every side is going to have its share of hard luck cases, backwards thinkers, just cross-grained bastards, bloody-minded fools. We, we've all got them in roughly equal measure. But that's why I think it's so important that everyone votes, literally everyone. For whatever reason... You know, once if, if one side or the other is able to motivate more of their lowest common denominator types to get out and vote at the polls, while another side alienates their best and brightest, or one side is repressing their best and brightest, uh, it can be a real problem because the curves, those curves, you know, the 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 wise fool slash uh, virtuous, vicious, all those curves that are kind of naturally balanced out in a population, they only balance out. When you get the whole population involved, right? Otherwise, you can cherry pick or shit pick, you know? 
And that's one of the reasons why this gerrymandering and voter suppression stuff just sucks. If you let one side vote with no restrictions, but you sift the other side through a net that only lets the most resourceful, persistent, stubborn types through, those curves don't balance out. And I think that's what we're seeing in today's politics. The Democrats spend a lot of time, you know, kind of pushing their leftists and their progressives down, holding them accountable, keeping them in check. And the Republicans just openly embrace and encourage all of their radical rabble rousers, their worst components. They encourage and, and, and accentuate that. And that, by the way, that's why I'm not like a neoliberal like the our buddy Bastiat that we talked to a few podcasts ago. I think of all the pod, the, the guests I've had on the podcast, he's probably the closest to where I think we should be right now, um, you know, already by, by general expert consensus opinion. But that's why I call myself socialist curious, because I, I really don't think that the height of culture would be to essentially have like what Germany or Norway had back in the 1990s. You know, I, I want to do uh, to do better than that. But on the other hand, you know, we just can't democratically enact Marxist socialism in America 2020. And I'm not even sure if that's what we would want to do. There's just no way. Because in my mind, we're lacking in actual technology and, and, and social technology to do that kind of, you know, Star Trek utopia stuff. We, we, need, to, we need to develop both of those technologies, social and uh, actual technology. You know, if we, had, if we had fusion reactors, the capacity to mine an asteroid belt... Uh, the ability to desalinate water on like a massive global scale, advanced AI, an automation. Fuck it. Yeah. Full socialism. Everyone guaranteed a rich middle class lifestyle with travel, vacations, nice homes, spacious parks, vibrant arts and culture. Just give it away for free. Why would you charge for it? You know, but if we develop these technologies without the social technology that goes along with it, uh, and by that, of course, I mean empathy, a sense of community, seeing the value of collective efforts, while still not losing respect for the rights of the individual, well, then we're just going to have some kind of Elysian or altered carbon type dystopian hell world where the rich live above us in like floating cities while all of us poor people just kind of run around like animals below. So... How do you determine who gets a say in a society? I think everyone gets a say. The poor, the rich, the people with vast capacities, the people with limited capacities, the healthy, the sick, all races, all genders, everyone, everyone gets a say. Everyone has a stake in it. And how do we determine our leaders? I mean, it seems like it's hard to beat representative democracy, you know? Maybe we should do a show on representative versus direct democracy someday because I think we have the tech right now where if we wanted to, we could literally have a direct democracy. You know, it's it's easy to, to see if we had a secure app where literally everyone could whip out their cell phone. Everyone over the age of 18 can just vote on whatever topic of the day is, you know. Um, I know a lot of people are starting to agitate for that, but is that what we want? Is that going to be better than, than a representative democracy where we essentially hire people to take care of that stuff for us and, and hold them accountable with a good systems of journalism and uh, whistleblowers and whatnot and, and hold them accountable through elections? I, I don't know about this direct democracy. Like Audrey pointed out in the previous uh, email, that, that doesn't even really scale to the level of like a big company, right? Let alone a nation of millions and millions. You know, you know, what do cashiers know about purchasing? What's the purchaser know about customer relations? What does the accountant know about loss prevention? Who can possibly know every expert opinion and consensus on every subject you'd need to run a government in the 21st century? 
it seems to me that you're, you're always going to have to point people to worry about those things. Then you evaluate how they do it. You know, how, how are they solving the problems? Hold them accountable, replace them when you need to. It's pretty much what we got going on now. There's not, not to say we can't improve things. You know, once we get past this election, I plan on doing some more. Either way it goes, more deep, long-term dives into things like this direct versus representative democracy, the electoral college, the conversion of territories and districts in the states, the House Reapportionment Act of 1929. Are you ready for that conversation? Federal court reform and other ways that we can rebalance our political systems to be more democratic and more fair to get everyone involved. Because beyond the day the day concerns of like, you know, healthcare, housing, criminal justice reform, there's just so much that we got to think about and get going on. But but yeah, sum up, everyone should have a say because at the end of the day, if everyone has a say, all the stuff you worry about kind of balances out and you have a true represented democracy and that's how you get a shared sense of values and justice. That's how you get that true positive piece that Martin Luther King Jr. is talking about. But uh, appreciate your email and uh, thanks for the kind words. Scott V on the USPS Overton window. As you know, in 2006, Congress passed the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act. Its purpose was to cripple the USPS, the United States Postal Service. It mandates uh, pre-funding benefits for years ahead of payments. It also prevented the post office from raising prices to ensure that they would show a loss. One source states it needs to pay roughly $5.6 billion annually to pay for these future benefits. No other government agency or private business is under this crutch. Since this bullshit law has passed in the last 13 years, the USPS would have had a surplus of 10 of those years, if not for the pre-funding requirements of roughly $5.6 billion. The United States Postal Service knows how to make money, but the right gets to say, see, see, the post office loses money. The post office loses money. Now, I agree with your argument that who cares if the post office loses money? We need it. But the first part is wrong. The post office makes money. Don't fall in their trap of pushing the window right. I ask you to alter your messaging to pull it back left. The law needs to be repealed. The USPS is profitable. I'm not trying to preach, but this is my hill to die on issue. I was so pissed in 06 when they passed this, and no one seems to care. Now, literally, democracy itself may hinge on it. I hate these fuckers trying to privatize everything that acting in bad faith to get it done. Doing a great job with the podcast. Keep it up. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it, Scott. And I 100% agree with you. We should definitely repeal that act. But a lot of what I try to do on the show is to make the most steel man of arguments, you know, contrast to like what you call a straw man argument. Uh, I'm trying to convince people who don't agree with the point of view that I'm coming from. Sometimes I like to take a step further back and say, okay, well, even if I agree with your premise X, Y, and Z, I still hold a stronger position because of A, B, and C. And some people don't like that. Like if I, if I give rhetorical ground, they think, oh my God, but I, I don't know. This is just what I've found effective talking to myself when I was a conservative, right? So when I sat down to do the Going Postal show, I actually planned fully on taking your tack and riding hard with it. But when I looked into it, I personally found that even if the Republicans had not stacked the deck with the Postal Service, you know, with this this, this horseshit funding their retirement accounts for 75 years for employees they haven't even hired yet, right? That it would still have been losing money over about the last decade or so because... You know, surprise, surprise, the Internet's really changed the game. The Postal Service has a lot of uh, their lucrative 
commercial male that used to kind of fatten up their body bottom lines. That stuff's gone and is never really coming back. So I didn't feel like it was 100% honest to say, hey, you know, if you just undo the Postal Accountability Enhancement Act, the, the, the Republicans forced down their throat, the Postal Service would be fine and in the black. It's true that they wouldn't be in a crisis because they'd still have surplus for sure. But they would be still in the position where they'd have to make substantial changes to modernize, increase prices, and consolidate to remain profitable. It wouldn't be an emergency. It wouldn't be a crisis. It, they would have a nice runway to do that. But but it's it's not the the only answer, right? And I can find a few articles and sources that had the same outlook as you because you know those are the ones I read and was familiar with. But but again, if you go with expert consensus. When I looked at it and, and looked at like what a lot of you know well-regarded institutions like the New York Times and Washington Post were reporting on the issue, and I read some of the underlying research, because um, that's what takes me so long on these damn things. Like I, I get ahead of steam to talk about something, and it's like, oh, not so fast. That actual consensus, you know, and I actually start sourcing stuff. Um, it, it, it felt like it was more closely reflected in the actual message that I did deliver that podcast. Which takes us back to the question, you know, is the Postal Service a constitutionally mandated service that we provide to all Americans or is it a business that has to be profitable or shut down or sold off? Right. And I actually think that the former view uh, is what pushes the post office's window further to the left, away from those privatization jackals that want to tear out its juicy, soft, profitable vitals and then leave that tough gristle and bone and hooves of rural mail service. (laughs) In this metaphor, that kind of like get sun bleached out and picked over by the buzzards. Yeah, I, you know, reasonable people can disagree, right? Um, and if you think I'm wrong with the consensus opinion, uh, send in those sources and articles and whatnot that that show the other the other side of that to three RT at baldmove.com, and I'd be happy to take a look. You know, I'm I'm almost always happy to be wrong about something because that means I get to learn something new and my worldview gets more accurate. But uh, what I read is that the Postal Service is still in trouble even without that horseshit bill. Trouble that they get themselves out of. And rhetorically, I just think the best is to say, like, you know what? If it costs us a little money, we're talking small amounts of billions to run a service as vast and extensive and vital as the Postal Service. It's better to make that argument than, like, no, see, it's actually profitable if you, you know, look at it from this, that, or the other lens. Even though that is also has merit to it. All right, let's move on to Travis, who has a gripe about our tax system. This gripe, Travis says, I'm actually pretty passionate about and what it means. We tax people backwards and reflects the unfortunately true and super fucked up values that our government holds. I prepare taxes for a living, been doing it for around 20 years. There's one return every year that drives me nuts. He's a nice guy. I don't hold it against him, but he comes from old money and his business is more or less a wash. He gets net Zero net taxable income generated. But he makes roughly the same amount of money that I do, about 100000 a year, from qualified dividends and capital gains, but he never pays any tax. Claiming he generates zero dollars in tax is a little disingenuous, as there's a couple of factors. There's a solar credit involved, which, you know, I support those, and large itemized deductions. Uh, but he doesn't want to get too far in the weeds. He says, the clearest button I can put on it is that for the 2019 tax year, I created a return as $100,000 of qualified income investment, long-term positions versus $100,000 of wages, you know, W-2 stuff, U and I stuff, 
flat amounts, same standard deductions, all that good stuff, $100,000 bottom line in those different income types. The result is the investor pays $7,264 in federal income tax. The wage earner pays $15,253 in federal income tax. This does not include, of course, FICA or Medicare. That's additional. And if you drop in 100000 straight into the business owner, they will pay $24,195 in taxes because of Social Security uh, being an income tax addition under those circumstances. So uh, I know this is already too long, <laughs> but workers are getting really screwed, which is a huge surprise, I know. The next step of thought is that there's a value statement from our government. This is the government directly telling us that their position is that there's more value in sitting back and letting your money grow than there is to earning a living doing something by over a 2x value. Once again, not even addressing the other types of payroll withholdings. It's saying that people who don't need money because they already have it deserve better treatment than those that have to work for it. It's so egregious and it's being perpetrated by both parties. I think this has been this uh, this way since Reagan, if not further back. True, especially the both part both party stuff. True. This is again egregious. I say we should tax capital gains like wages and wages like capital gains. Both parties have had multiple opportunities to fix this, but no one wants to piss off the investor class and hide behind this notion of, well, we need to encourage investment to grow the jobs. Meanwhile, everyone takes their business out of the country because they are mandated to get the best economic outcome for their shareholders. I'm sorry, but I prefer a philosophy that actually rewards workers as opposed to patting people who already are rich enough to survive on investments by giving them giant tax breaks. There is a value statement that our government is making here, and it's total bullshit. Um, I, hey man, I love the passion, and here is my three right turns take on the matter. Because, you know, I used to be a fiscal conservative, and I believe one of the reasons that we tax capital gain uh, differently than income tax is for, I think, sound economic principles. So... Let's let's talk a word about these social economic principles, because, again, it's the three right turns answers. I'm going to be quick and easy. You know, where do we get these sound economic principles, you know, that we cite to run our economy? Well, they're generated and taught at universities, right? Um, these universities are, of course, they, they, they live, they spring forth from capitalist societies, and they are frequently concerned with their own bottom lines. And, and in America... Every few generations since the October Revolution in Russia, we've essentially purged all of the so socialist thought leaders from our society. And I mean that literally. If you're an old socialist in this country, you've survived the purge where if you identified or met with individuals or groups that were involved in the promotion of labor rights, socialist thought, communism, civil rights, you could be fired. You could be blackballed out of your field of expertise or employment. You could be jailed. You could be beaten. The FBI and CIA would harass the shit out of you. The IRS would fuck with your money. You could not get elected to office. You could get disenfranchised. I mean, just imagine if that same thing happened in this, the sciences, the, the quote-unquote hard sciences. Imagine if anyone working on quantum mechanics was jailed or persecuted back in the 50s and 60s in favor of classical mechanics. Actually, I, I, that's probably a I don't think quantum mechanics is around in the 50s or 60s. But, but you, you know what I'm saying, right? You, you probably have a lot of fucked up academic institutions, right? The rate of scientific progress would be slower. We'd probably start losing ground in terms of scientific and technological progress uh, because 
our research and development would be based on increasingly outdated philosophies. And we even have an example of this thing happening in the Soviet Union. Those goddamn godless commies, they fell under the spell of the pseudoscientific view of agriculture. So in the early to mid 20th century, while the rest of the world was adopting agricultural practices that embraced findings from the new school of genetics, vastly increasing their yields and ability to grow better crops, prominent Soviet biologists rejected this new science, preferring to stick with older philosophies like Lamarckism. And and I'm this is way too big of a topic to answer in a feedback episode, but it led them to do pretty bizarre things. Like they had the spring wheat that didn't yield as much, but they had a, a had a longer growing season. And then they had a, this autumn wheat that had wonderful yields, but a shorter growing season. So you could genetically engineer these wheats with some kind of hybrid uh, with selective breeding over time to make the spring wheat have the yield of the autumn wheat, but yet still keep that extended growing system, thus maximizing your yields. But the Soviets didn't believe in that science. So what they did is they tried to take the spring wheat and tried to train it like a dog to be autumn wheat by planting it in the late fall for several years. And barring that, they tried to expose the spring wheat seeds to winter-like conditions, keeping them in damp and cold uh, storage conditions until it was time to plant. Meanwhile, over 3,000 leading Soviet biologists said, this is crazy. It's going to lead to people being starved, Uh, And all those people were imprisoned, exiled, sent to labor camps, or executed. Genetic research was effectively outlawed until Stalin's death in the mid-50s. Now, due to this policy, crop yields in Soviet Union collapsed while the Western worlds were exploding. And as a result, food shortages, bread lines, and starvation followed. Just fucking commies, right? Is it possible that we've done something similarly economically in the Western world, particularly here in America. Is that one of the reasons that we uniquely struggle with issues that the rest of the developed world has largely solved because we keep purging anyone who holds leftist economic ideas? I mean, I don't know. It kind of sounds borderline conspiratorial to me. The existing economic expert consensus seems to be to me that you want to keep capital gains relatively low in comparison to tax on things like wages because raising the tax on one decreases investment in the economy, which slows the economy, which effectively hurts us all. Whereas, you know, people got to work to eat. It's not like you're going to stop working if you raise a person's effective tax from 17% to 19%, you know? Now, do I think it's horseshit to let the gap get that wide? Yeah, I mean, I've often said in this podcast that the more money you make, the easier it is to dodge taxes and to make more money. The less money you make, the harder it is to dodge taxes and your wealth grows proportionally smaller, if it grows at all. It's it's like the rocket science example I'm always using. You know, the Apollo program. You've seen Apollo 13, right? You remember how enormous that first rocket stage of that thing is? It's huge. It's like twice the size and girth uh, of, the, of, this, of the next stage up. Um. But that's what you need just to get to orbit. That's how much fuel you need to, 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 to lift this thing just in the orbit. The second smaller stage, that's what you need to get to the moon. And that itty, itty, bitty thing that straps to the lunar command module, that's all you got to do to get from the moon back to the Earth. So when you're in business for yourself, it's incredibly hard to earn that first $100,000. Because as you know, you pointed out, they're taking 25% of it from you or more. 
The next 100,000, it's much easier. And the time you're making millions and you're investing that stuff, you're not even paying income tax at all because it's all capital gains, which is what capped at 15% or so. Next time you file your, your taxes, folks, look at your effective tax rate. See how much tax you're paying. Make sure you include the state, federal, local. Make sure you include Social Security, Medicare. Make sure if you work for someone, you're keeping in mind that on that W-2, you're not seeing it, but your employer is paying about 7% tax. It would otherwise you know, go to you. And you add all that up and tell me if it's more or less than 15%. So I'm not saying that capital gains should be taxed at 50% because, you know, that might crash the economy. And then you got the other, you got the Soviet problem of like, well, you know, we want the world to be in a shape that the world isn't in. So we're going to do this thing that makes us feel good and, you know, best of intentions and all that kind of stuff. We really wanted to feed our people, but we invested in Lamarckism. You know, is this economic uh, Lamarckism? I, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. But the way it is now where the wealthy pay half the effective tax rates that we do uh, for less actual labor, it doesn't seem fair. And it seems like the kind of scheme you'd have if you had people with money lobbying the government to, to make things easier for them while the working stiffs like you, you know, you know, you and me don't have any voice at all. So as there's a theme in this feedback episode. If, if you know someone's got a better economic background than me, they can kind of walk us through all that stuff, the expert opinion and why it's wrong, et cetera. Uh, see if we can come up with better ways to balance things. I'd love to do that, but it's hard for me to sift through all the research and economic thought. I'm working on it, but you know, hell, it's, it's taken me years to, to, to understand uh, just topics of stuff like social justice and, and, and race and, and gender issues like that. Um, this economic stuff is is a relatively newer topic for me, so um, I, I need to fill that out. So if you if you got anybody, um, again three three R turns at swizzbold.com. If you are that person, uh, send that that uh, uh, offer into three RT at swizzbold.com. In the meantime, my strategy is to keep people like real publican uh, from running all the socialists and leftists out of the universities and uh, the Democratic Party, so that if we do have some kind of a, intellectual blind spot that we're not seeing when it comes to economics, uh, we can get that fixed. And we're not going to have like a bizarro Soviet Union, Lamarckism, famine, starvation thing happen to us. So thanks for writing in. Great email. Jordan's Next says, hope you're doing well and staying safe. Thank you. You as well. Want to send in a quick email regarding the episode 19 of Three Right Turns, specifically the section toward the end where you spoke about systemic racism versus regular racism. I've recently begun uh, going on a journey reading about anti-racism and racism and trying to educate myself. If you haven't already read it, I would strongly recommend re uh, checking out Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. In it, he clearly defines all kinds of terms and makes a distinction between racist ideas and racist policies to clarify terms like institutional racism, structural racism, etc., his book, Stamped from the Beginning, is also an enlightening read, detailing the history of racist ideas in the U.S. going back hundreds of years. Hope these books are helpful for you if you check them out. Well, thanks so much, Jordan. Um, I actually am familiar with uh, Dr. Kendi's work. I mean, where do you think I get all this stuff? <laughs> that I talk about expert consensus, right? Um, I don't come up with all this stuff on like race just by sitting around and thinking about it. You know, I, I, I wish... I had that kind of capacity, but I, I stand on the shoulders of giants. But here's the real deal. I know a lot of people who decry 
anti-racism as like the real racists. They're the ones stoking the the racist divisions in our society. And, you know, these are the people that are convinced that racism was solved back in the 70s and the, the 60s, rather. And now it's just, you know, minorities bitching and moaning about getting free stuff and handouts. In fact, you know, less than a month ago, I had a falling out with a friend over this shit. They walked away from me. I didn't walk away from them. But it was incredibly depressing. This person had a similar background to me, solid liberal, decent head on their shoulders. And, you know, I I bet they're going to be Republican in the next decade. And they'll tell everybody who will listen that it's the crazy left. With this, anti- this this racist bullshit that they're they're pr- uh, pushing in the universities and cancel culture and all that stuff, that's going to be why they say they had to do it, you know. And it's just like Trump, you know, pushing back uh, in the sixteen nineteen project with this what was he calling it seventeen seventy six uh, project, which is just blowing American sunshine up kids' asses instead of telling them the truth about how this country was founded where it came from, the struggles it's seen. You know, like like uh, Jack Nicholson said, uh, s- some people can't handle the truth, right? And I think if you have a good handle on the idea of structural and system- systemic racism, if you're ready to take on, you know, higher level concepts like white fragility and other things that just seem to really piss off white folks, by all means, check out the works of Dr. Kendi or, or uh, Robin D'Angelo, right? But what I try to do on Three Right Turns is read that kind of stuff, filter it through my reactionary, religious, conservative brain, and then think about the stuff that like reflexively pisses me off or used to piss me off, and then come up with arguments that might appeal to that kind of person. Instead of provoking those defensive reactions, how can I short-circuit those defensive reactions? Or if the hackles start raising, how can I smooth them down? Because you know you got to get a person out of that defensive, hostile uh, mindset towards new information before you can ever hope to get that new information across. And unfortunately, a lot of the academic types just take the research, they take the facts, they identify the problems, they present solutions. And, you know, what's the problem with that? Well, they just don't give a shit about selling those solutions. People need to be sold. You really can't take the tack of telling people that they're racist if they don't feel racist and then call them more racist when they get angry and defensive about you calling them racist. Like, I mean, you can, but you're not going to bring those people to your side. Right. So I think that's where, you know, we Southern Midwestern and otherwise rural progressives, we can shine. We, we can be that hurt and anger translators for people. We can be the merchants of truth. We can sell this stuff because it's a great product and it works. And if we could get everyone on board with these points of view, it would transform the country for the better. If so, yeah, if you if you want to take the, the next level stuff, uh, check out the uh, Ibram uh, uh, X. Kendi, uh, Robin D'Angelo, some of those uh, types of people that are kind of on the cutting edge of this anti-racism stuff. Um, but don't recommend your dad. Don't try to get your 73-year-old father who summers in Florida to, to read those books and unless he's already kind of inclined to, to, to that direction because, I, honestly, I, I see this stuff just radicalizing a lot of white people, and it fucking sucks. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's, all, it's all truth. You just got to figure out a way to tell them, tell them the truth of love. Next is Daniel, a years-long fan and uh, Bald Move Club member. I appreciate that. I'm very interested in, and impressed with your development as a thinker. 
Uh, wow. I remember discovering you guys with your excellent The Leftovers podcast, but I also remember you making a homophobic slur. I think you might have called someone a cocksucker disparagingly. I was a little taken back, but as I become acquainted with your personal history and more importantly, your relentless impulse to, to learn and improve, I saw these kinds of shortcomings as charming artifacts of an intellectually impoverished upbringing in the cult of middle America. To this day, I love that you mispronounce so many words. Uh, it reminds me that you are self-taught and I've probably only encountered these words in books rather than me hearing them from teachers or parents. Well, uh, you know, I still love the word cocksucker. I, I don't say it very often because and I probably shouldn't say it at all, right? But it just feels really satisfying uh, rolling around in your mouth. <laughs> uh, I tried to reclaim it um, a couple years ago by saying, you know, who doesn't really appreciate a good cocksucker? If you got a cock, you got to love a cocksucker, right? You got no choice but to stand cocksuckers. But then it doesn't work as an insult. So haven't been able to normalize the benevolent use of cocksucker. But uh no, yeah, you'll you'll learn and you grow. Uh, sometimes you stop saying words because you don't want to hurt people or you don't want other people to get the wrong impression about you. And so long as I can say shit show, ape shit, permutations of the word fuck, uh, I think I'll be okay, you know. But I, I'm putting you guys on notice. You guys come for shit or fuck, it's I'm going to the barricades. You hear me? All this progressive shit. Out the window. I'm going full on reactionary. I, I gotta have my my. I, I need full shit and fuck solidarity or the Star Trek Republican Alliance. It's it's over. Let's get back to the email. Daniel says, "I love three right turns. You've taken the skills you spent years developing to deconstruct and analyze culture, and are now applying them to bigger issues with real life consequences." Your episode on third party voting. Uh, was particularly momentous for me because you actually changed my mind or at least gave me pause about being a committed third-party voter. Hey, man, happened to me. I was libertarian all the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, how often are any of our minds actually changed about deeply held beliefs through encountering rhetoric in news or social media? Almost never. Sir, this is incredibly high praise. I'm having a hard time processing it, but I appreciate it. He continues, regarding the cancel culture, it was brilliantly stated, however, I feel like you didn't address what I see as the main problems of so-called cancel culture. All right. The biggest one is the vagary that often goes into these sentences being handed down. So-and-so is accused of some form of impropriety. There's a quality of of a secret closed-door tribunal and that verdicts are being handed down, but the public is not participating in a weighing of the evidence or sometimes having punishments with no deliberation. A college professor says something publicly that sets off woke detectors. It's not certain if what they said was indefensible, but there's a whiff of questionality about it. How does one deliberate on an unfamiliar odor? They don't. So it's safer to fire them than try to suss it out. These calculations take too much processing power, so we don't make them and err on the side of caution. Sometimes this is because of the short attention span of public interest. Sometimes it's because of analysis fatigue. Sometimes because of the bloodlust of frustrated people who simply want to see someone publicly shamed or tortured. Because I don't think we've ever outgrown that tendency as people. Sometimes because of the incoherence or sloppiness of decisions made during the red-hot energy of a moral panic. The mere whiff of someone being problematic can be the same thing as being judged and found guilty of committing the offense. For one, because simply being accused of something has consequences. If I'm accused of murder and held without bond for years in jail and lose my job, my wife, my friends, and freedom, it almost doesn't matter what the verdict is because I've already started paying the penalty. 
So I'm going to stop here and, and say that you included a celebrity uh, example of this. And, and I don't know, maybe this proves your point. Um, but because I wasn't aware of it, I, I didn't have time to properly research the matter myself. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to specifically mention the same ones you do, uh, but I know what you mean. You know, I can think of uh, a handful of, of things off the top of my head where uh, famous people seem to have gotten kind of railroaded by the Me Too uh, courts. Um, I think Johnny Depp seems like the, the worm kind of turned on that sometime in the last few months. You know, James Gunn got canceled. Uh, not over Me Too stuff, but because of other things that uh, he said a while back and had already previously atoned for and kind of come clean with. Uh, but, you know, I, I think he's turned out okay after that. So let's get back to your email. It says, I have experienced this punishment by accusation firsthand when my daughter's mother took me to court to challenge my joint custody of their daughter over a decade ago. And she did it twice, purely out of spite. Both cases were thrown out by the judge, a judge who didn't seem to understand why we were wasting her time when we turned up on her docket, but it didn't matter because I was already out the time, the legal fees, and the anxiety. My ex had succeeded in hurting me by simply taking, making me defend myself. I mean, yeah. I mean, for every big-time celebrity that gets fucked over and improperly railroaded, as you say, there's probably at least 10 little guys that get it, too. I mean, it just, just goes to reason. Continuing with Daniel's email, when there's a moral panic, thresholds get lowered, the thresholds for making sense get lowered, the threshold for proof of guilt get lowered. By the end of Me Too, I, I don't know if it's ended, but by the end of Me Too, the coherence is really slipping. We ended up with one of the strangest, most postmodern slogans in history, believe all women. Uh, I just want to say that I've always pushed back on that in particular. I think believe all women is not a great slogan and is a worse philosophy. It's treating women like they're not capable of being heinous human beings, and that's just not the case. I think the better slogan is take all women seriously. Credible allegations deserve a thorough investigation. And I've been saying that since day one of the Me Too movement on podcasts, on the Bald Move Forum. Um, so I, I do agree with you there. Maybe the worst problem with lowering the threshold of evidence for canceling people is that it waters down the efficacy of the movement. False accusations of rape and assault harm the movement more than anything ever could. Mm. Cancel culture that is abusive, irrational, or unjust works at cross purposes. The act of canceling becomes too easy or too prevalent because of the darker desire to fill news cycles, to satiate the public craving for spectacles and shaming, and that cancels itself out ironically. Uh, another thing I wish you could have dug more into is the question of what is more useful for a society to trying to improve death sentences or rehabilitations. A true cancellation is the equivalent of a death sentence. And honestly, these rarely happen, at least for famous people. Almost anyone in the public eye can craft a comeback narrative and be allowed back in with sufficient time. But if you lost your job as a policeman, a teacher, for instance, for unproven allegations, that career path may be closed permanently for you. And that's real death. And when you're at the lower level of income, uh, career opportunities, these consequences can be extremely severe. I'd like to ask you to take a look at how this is playing out more in the, these lower levels of society. I'd like to see you tackle some instances at the university level, for instance. Uh, and then somebody way more may, may a small fry, like a grade school teacher or a bus driver. So in short, I loved your episode, but I felt like you yada yada the consequences of cancel culture gone wrong. I think you could do a whole other episode on the topic and go deeper. I, I, well, first of all, thanks for your email and for the kind words. And you're not wrong. Like this cancel culture thing, you could talk a lot about. Uh, here's what I have to say. I am wary of cancel culture, you know, 
Uh, I've seen good people get canceled by malicious people for manufactured reasons. You know, people that I uh, follow and care about, people that have been influential to the way of of my thinking. I, I've seen them get kind of fucked over. Now, m- almost everyone I can think of has survived the canceling t- attempt, but it was very stressful. It seemed like a nightmare to deal with. Um, you know, it, I I think uh, that's a matter for serious concern. Simultaneously. I will stick to my guns and say I think it's also blown way out of proportion. So, for example, all evidence points that false rape allegations occur at the same frequency that essentially all false crime reports occur at, which is a very low number. The The rate I've read in reports say that anywhere between 2 and 6% of rape allegations uh, are false. But, you know, the number of rapes that don't get reported, don't get investigated... Uh, are thought to be far higher than that. Let's let's put it another way. There are far, far, far more innocent people in jail that are serving sentences for crimes. Let's put it this way. If we're talking in terms of people being canceled, I think there are a lot of people in jail, innocent people in jail, that are serving sentences for crimes that they didn't commit. You know, I, that's not a controversial statement. If you look at the criminal justice statistics, if you look at the work of like the Innocent Project, these sources state that anywhere between 2.3 and 5% of the total U.S. prison population are innocent of the crimes they committed, meaning somewhere between 50,000 and 200,000 people are in prison right now for nothing. Now, I ask you, how many times have you heard in news or pop culture uh, this fact dis- discussed versus how much you've heard cancel culture discussed. And more tellingly, how many times have you heard cancel culture being discussed purely in terms of the rich and famous versus the average Joe like you're talking about, right? And, and I'm not saying that our fucked up criminal justice system and, and jailing the wrong people never gets discussed. It does. You know, we discussed it here in this podcast. But in proportion to cancel culture? Holy shit, I don't think it's even close. And... I, I think you're falling victim to that a little bit, too. And and it's understandable. Like, you've had a personal experience with dealing with this, for getting railroaded and for feeling that, that helpless kind of sick feeling, right? You know, people with personal experience on things, they, they, they tend to fixate on it. Like, if you're, if you're a parent in Flint, Michigan, and the idea of your kid, uh, you're, you're struggling with the fact that they're, they're drinking water with high levels as a substance that's proven to make people violent and stupid... What's going to be a more important topic than that? If you happen to live next door to a homeless encampment, it's probably your number one issue. Now, these are all huge problems, don't get me wrong. And, and I can't even imagine what it would be like to be falsely accused of something like rape. You know, I, I try not to think about it because to me it feels like one of those ultimate Kafka-esque experiences, like being involuntarily committed to a mental institution. You're never going to get out screaming, I'm fucking sane, you fucks, right? But what else can you do? It's just sheer panic and terror. Like sitting in jail for crime you didn't commit. All those things. The stuff that would make you crazy. But I'm telling you. Here's where I'm coming from. If you could round up all of the cancel kids, right? And be like, all right, you guys. We're stopping this. No more canceling. You're going to knock this canceling shit out. And they actually listen to you? It's not going to make the difference. It's not even going to make a dent. And the problems we're facing in 21st century Americans. It's not going to get those 200,000 people out of jail, right? That's that's going through the fucking legal system. And compared to things like healthcare, housing and food insecurity, shitty schools, political corruption, I, I are they? It is is it as important 
And if those cancel kids don't listen, what are you going to do? Jail them for canceling and and being mean on Twitter? And I know it's not just those organized harassment campaigns. People do lose their jobs. There people do suffer like the the social death penalty, right? But what I'm trying to do here is bring perspective. You know, I, I noticed that if, if you get the, pers- the this the cancel culture bug up your ass, it seems like there's an unlimited pipeline of things for you to get permanently riled up about. There's whole YouTube channels that will just mainline that shit in your suggested feeds all day, every day. And I don't see that for a lot of the real pernicious social issues, economic issues, foreign policy issues of the day, right? I mean, do you worry about being falsely accused of murder? Well, if you don't, why are we worrying about being falsely accused of rape? There's nothing you can do to to defend yourself against either, right? Unless you have an enormous amount of cash and a public platform that you can fight from. The best defense is, you know, to be a good person, treat your friends and family well, respect women, try not to call people cocksuckers, you know, that the kind of basic stuff, right? Because the other thing about this cancel culture thing I feel like is never mentioned is it's it's almost never the case that one or two accusations of something sketchy is what brings people down, right? If we're talking about sexual harassment, racism, things like that, it's when one person comes forward and then a dozen more women say, oh my God, I thought I was the only one, but they did this to you too. And you investigate, and it's all credible as hell, and they've all independently uh, talked to their friends and their families and their therapists, and there's a record, and there's dates you can match up. You know, it, it's it's not like there's this kind of runaway court of public opinion. It doesn't seem like to me. And my heart goes out to anyone who's been done dirty by the legal system or has been harassed online for no reason or who's lost their jobs to the kids because of some of this bullshit. But also, my heart goes out to all the women who get raped and then nothing's done about it because their state decided not to test literally thousands of rape kits. Or they don't come forward because when they do, they get guaranteed to be accused of making a false accusation. I I just, I don't think it's a proportionate concern. I mean, that's kind of why I covered it the way I did. I just think it's a ludicrous demand in society to have, in some cases, when you're talking about, you know, gender disparities, thousands of years of degradation and dehumanization and disenfranchisement. And the first decade that we start to take this stuff seriously, like, okay, okay, now just wait a fucking minute. The real problem here is everybody's starting to care about this stuff a little too much. You know, I've I've talked about this before, but these things are like a pendulum in society. It's not going to stop dead center. You know, when it's when this pendulum's swinging in a direction you don't want, you got to try to slow it down. And when the when the the situation when the pendulum's swinging towards a direction you do want, you know, if we're on the side and we have some say in it, maybe we can uh, keep it from swinging too far in, in a different direction and as eventually we'll get to some kind of centered position. But, you know, there's going to be an overreaction. There's going to be a backlash. There's going to be a backlash to the backlash. And who's going to lose out when it comes to the backlash to Me Too? You know, that's not great either because we know what was happening before Me Too. Having said that, you know, I do ride pretty hard against canceling. You know, am I calling for Nick Cannon's head? Am I calling on people to boycott J.K. Rowling? I don't think her positions are very well thought out, um, but I'm not saying that people should out cancel her. Do I say, you know, believe all women no matter what? No. But on the other hand, if someone has more than two or three independent serious rape allegations against them, I don't feel like I need a court of law to tell me that they're guilty so I can start distancing myself from those people. 
and reevaluating my relationship with them as a fan or, you know, as a, as a business associate, things like that. Because if you got three credible rape allegations against you, man, you probably raped somebody. Because, you know, like I said, women can be as evil and duplicitous and downright nasty as any man, but three of them deciding to randomly get up and ruin your life? We're starting to get struck by lightning territory. And a lot of this Me Too stuff, it wasn't just uh, three, it was a dozen or more. So I remain convinced that the uproar and the backlash to cancel culture and Me Too remains a far larger problem than the movements themselves. Um, Cancel culture can get out of hand. Innocent people can get hurt, but it's like any other thing. You know, it, it, there, there's there's not hysteria over uh, false reports of murder. There's not a hysteria over false reports of other violent crime. It's I, I think it's something that we can do a little soul searching here about, like, why this has actually happened. And if the backlash, you know, is really deserved, um, even though the it's it's if you're an innocent person is being affected, it's got to be the worst fucking thing. Um, but there are worse, there are things happening across this country at that level or worse all the time and a systemic manner. And I just, I just don't see the proportionate need. So like I said, I can see how this would get out of hand, uh, but to shut it down completely, I think it's a impossible and B it's going to enable the shitbirds who have been flying under the radar for far too long. And that feels like moving backwards to me. So maybe you can see where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm not denying any of your points. I'm just saying, in comparison to the other things we're talking about in three right turns, um, it's improper to focus too much on cancel culture. So uh, anyway, I appreciate you uh, uh, listening and hearing me out, and I hope you felt listened to and heard too. So I actually have a lot more feedback to get to. Uh, I got it all f- formatted and ready to answer, but because um, you know we've been running for a while now, instead of doing um, these things all in a block, every, you know, every four months or so, I think I'm going to start answering one of these things a week um, rather than letting it build up and see how that goes. I'm going to do the traditional three right turns, interview, deep topical dive, and then include at least one feedback in with it. So if you haven't gotten a direct answer from me or you haven't heard, you know, your feedback talked about on the podcast, don't despair. Check out in the weeks ahead and I'm going to continue to work through the various topics and emails. Thanks once again for listening to Three Right Turns. If you have some more feedback on this or any other Three Right Turns topic, or you want to suggest topics or people to interview, please send that in to 3RT at swizzbold.com. You can also post about each show on reddit.com slash r slash swizzbold. And if you appreciate what we do here on Three Right Turns and the Swizzbold Network, please consider giving us your support at patreon.com slash swizzbold. Support entitles you to custom Reddit flair, access to our patron-only member content, like our monthly live streams. And man, you're not going to want to miss this next month's one because it's going to be a post-election, oh my God, have we figured out who our president is yet? Oh God, kind of special edition live stream. I have a feeling. Maybe it'll be the other way. I don't know. But that's what I'm, as optimistic as I sound in the intro, that's kind of what I'm expecting. If you want to sign up now to get access to that upcoming live stream or nearly a year's worth of other content, please go to patreon.com slash swizzbold and sign up today. Special thanks to all of our Fred-level supporters, Kira Grusho, Arvin Rao, Brandon DeVito, Brian Rasmussen, Lisa Singleton, Jared Harrelman, George P. Perdell, Greg Rasp, Jordan Hoyt, Angelo Marano, Dave Satterley, Laura Luthi, Mark Hahn, James Taylor, and Jenny. As always, we couldn't do this without you. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, check out my other podcast on Swizz Bold with 
the fabulous Cecily, One Weird Trick, where we exchange life pro tips, give counsel and advice to anyone that seeks it over at One Weird Trick, again, right here on SwizzBold.com. Enjoy your week, everybody, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.